This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Megan Camrick. Do you feel more angry lately? Have you found yourself in heated arguments on Facebook or Twitter? If so, you're not alone. Surveys have found a rising anger over the last several years, even before the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 and 2021. 2018 Gallup poll found more Americans stressed, worried, and angered than in the previous year. But anger is often an indicator of other things going on inside us, including anxiety. On this episode of Peace Talks Radio, correspondent Megan Kamrick explores the dynamics of anger with three guests who offer insights on how one can avoid fights that don't change anything and also how to use our anger effectively. Todd Kashtan is a psychologist and author. He's co-written numerous articles and the book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, which explored the power of bringing our whole selves, not just the positive side, to our work and relationships. Aaron Balick is a psychotherapist and author of The Psychodynamics of Social Networking, Connected Up Instantaneous Culture and the Self. And he talks with Megan a little later about how anger manifests online. But first, we're going to hear from Dr. Harriet Lerner. She's a psychologist best known for her work on the psychology of women and family relationships. And she's the author of 12 books, including the bestseller, The Dance of Anger. Lerner says, we often mismanage anger, and women in particular are socialized not to show anger. Is anger always a negative emotion? No, anger is not a negative emotion. Anger, actually, it's a very important emotion for two reasons. One is that anger helps us to define the self. So it's our anger that can motivate us to say, this is what I think, this is what I feel, these are the things that I will and will not do. So anger can help us clarify who we are separate from what others want and expect us to be. And just as physical pain tells us to take our hand off the hot stove, the pain of our anger preserves the dignity and the integrity of ourself. And the second reason that anger can be a very positive emotion is that anger is a vehicle for change, both for change in a personal relationship and for social and political change, for example, as witnessed by the past decades of feminism. So people don't like, quote, those angry women, unquote, but those angry women have changed and challenged the lives of all of us. And now, for example, we have Black Lives Matter. So anger, if it's used correctly, is a very powerful and positive vehicle for personal and social political change. And how is anger perhaps a symptom of other issues going on inside of us? Well, now we get into the tricky part, because although anger is a signal, and it can signal that something is wrong, our anger does not tell us what is wrong or specify what is the real problem. 
and how we might best approach it. So while anger signals a problem, venting anger does not solve the problem. And in fact, venting anger usually will protect rather than protest the status quo. Actually, there are two main ways that women in particular, and often people in general, will mismanage their anger. Hmm. Say more about that. Well, when I was writing The Dance of Anger, it was actually titled Nice Ladies and Bitches, A Woman's Guide to Anger. And only later did that title get changed. The nice lady category is culturally prescribed. So in this category are women who give in, go along, accommodate, don't rock the boat, and avoid anger and conflict at all costs. And then for the bitches, many women, myself included, get angry with ease. But getting angry may be getting nowhere and even making things worse. If you look at these two styles of mismanaging anger, they'll look as different as night and day, but the outcome is the same. The real issues are not identified and addressed. The woman is left feeling helpless and powerless, and nothing changes. Doesn't it feel good to vent? Well, it may feel good in the short run, but usually nothing changes. I mean, if you vent your anger and you get the desired result, all the power to you. But the problem that happens with anger is that when humans are doing something that is not working with our anger, do we stop and do something different? No. It's really very interesting because humans will continue for at least a lifetime doing more of the same that's not working. And Harriet Lerner, how is women's anger in particular viewed in our society? What kind of pitfalls does that have? Women have always been discouraged from the expressions of healthy anger and protest. We can take up anger on behalf of people weaker than ourselves, like mothers against drunk driving, for example. But we mustn't take up a woman's cause. You know, Megan, we can just think about the language that we speak. Women that, for example, vent anger at men, where witches, bitches, hags, nags, shrews, castrating, strident, ball-breaking. I mean, we can make a very long list. Interestingly, we don't have these terms for men who vent their anger at women. And in fact, the two most popular pejorative terms for men are bastard and son of a bitch, which actually just blame a woman, his mother. Women are encouraged to cultivate guilt like a little flower garden. You know, guilty about leaving our work for our children, guilty about leaving our children for our work, guilty if we didn't have work, guilty if we didn't have children, 
guilty about the idea we might stop being guilty, you know, get angry instead. Because if we're focused on the question, what's wrong with me, this will block the awareness of legitimate anger. And we will not be agents of change. We won't take action. Women will still say to me, you know, I don't call myself a feminist. I don't want to be one of those angry women. Those pejorative terms about angry women, they're not just mean, sexist stereotypes, but they also serve to silence women. It's interesting that you write about the choices we make in relationships, especially women, by saying, well, if I do this, my partner will be angry. But the unspoken choice there is, if I don't do this, then I will be angry. (laughs) And so what does it mean to use our anger energy effectively? Humans are wired for fight, flight. And our anger is often simply an anxiety-driven response that can be very misleading. If you think about fight flight, it takes only a little bit of stress and we will have a flight response, meaning we will distance, we will cut off. So that's a flight response. And then there's the fight response where, again, it just takes a little bit of stress and people will very quickly become polarized. We will become over-focused on what the other person is doing to us or not doing for us. And we will be under-focused on our own creative options to de-intensify the situation. You know, the other thing, Megan, is that it's very difficult to know what the real issue is that we're angry about. And not only that, it's very difficult to sort out with whom is the real issue. For example, whenever you have a wife and a mother-in-law fighting it out, You also have a man who is not able to take a position with his own mother. He's not able to say to his mother, Mom, I love you both, but it's it's very important for me that the two of you get along. And when you come over, I need you to be treating her with kindness and respect. In other words, if the man doesn't have a voice with his own mother, you will see the two women slugging it out. Here's an example I see very frequently where women I have in therapy, let's say their dad has remarried and they will be so angry at their dad's new wife. They'll say things like, she's ruining my relationship with my dad She doesn't even let him talk to me, call me when she's in the house. What isn't being dealt with here or not being seen clearly 
is that it is her dad's responsibility, 100%, to protect his relationship with his daughter. Think about our time-honored fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel, where we blame the wicked stepmother and we sympathize with the poor father who had to send his children out to die because, oh wow, you know, this woman, the stepmother was such a meanie that how could he resist? And mothers read this story to their kids, you know, where the kids kill off the wicked witch, another woman, and they go home to their dear beleaguered stepfather and they live happily ever after. And then if we are clear about the sources of our anger and who we need to talk to, then there's the matter of how do you do it? And so often women go to battle and men go to battle without clarifying what do I want to accomplish and what is the best way to do it? Because if we're in fight flight mode, we're just going to parachute down on that person and we're going to overtalk it and we're going to criticize and blame and that person will get defensive, surprise, surprise, because we are all wired for defensiveness. And that person will probably further wrap themselves in layers of denial, minimization, rationalization. And then we give up, you know, and decide they're impossible. Um, so this is really hard stuff. It's not like these are the six easy steps <laughs> to use your anger effectively. We often get the advice, choose your battles, meaning you can't win everything you want to. There's no point in getting mad about everything. So what would this mean in terms of the things you're talking about? When I was a young professional, I moved from New York and Berkeley to the heart of patriarchy in Topeka, Kansas. I took it upon myself to speak out all the time. I became totally ineffective and also I was in a great deal of pain. And I did learn that it was not useful to address every injustice that I saw and then also to make wise decisions about how and when to say what to whom. Part of managing anger effectively is, first of all, to calm ourselves down because no one thinks clearly in the midst of a tornado. How do we do that? Any way that you can. It's important to strike when the iron is cold. To use anger effectively, we also have to be self focused. Self-focused means we put our energy into becoming good observers of the pattern and our part in the pattern. 
And Harriet Lerner, you write that secretly many of us believe we hold the truth and the world would be better if everyone else believed and reacted as we did. So how can we ensure our needs are met while also settling disputes in a nonviolent or healthy way? I have a wonderful cartoon in my consulting room, and the cartoon shows a dog and a cat in bed together. And the dog is looking morose and reading a book called dogs who love too much. And the cat is saying, I'm not distancing. I'm a cat, damn it. (laughs) And, you know, it's a great cartoon because it helps couples to lighten up about differences. The challenge there is to not get caught up in the same old fights if they're not going anywhere, but to be able to define a bottom line, to be able, rather than to open the conversation by being the best expert on the other person, to open the conversation by saying, I can't be in this conversation when I feel unheard. So of course you have to define a position. Of course you have to be clear first within yourself before you go out to battle, you know, what are the things you can live with? What are the different things you can do to make yourself more comfortable? And sort of what's your bottom line? What are those things in the relationship that are not negotiable? But again, nothing's going to change if all you can do is blame the other person and participate in fights that you know from the past don't go anywhere. That was Dr. Harriet Lerner, psychologist and author of 12 books, including The Dance of Anger. You can hear more in Megan Kamrick's complete interview with Dr. Lerner at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Coming up, Megan talks with an author about why anger also has an upside right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Megan Kamrick. There's a lot of pressure in our society to feel good, to be positive, and not dwell on our anger. But our next guest says anger can be an effective tool for social change and for getting what we need. Dr. Todd Kashtan is the co-author of a book called The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, drives success and fulfillment. I wanted to start this conversation by asking you about emotional labor. 
and how that plays out in our lives in terms of societal pressure to be upbeat and positive all the time. Emotional labor is the notion is that uh, we bring our whole selves into the workplace, whether our managers, our leaders, and our coworkers acknowledge that. And any time that we are asked to engage in behavior, including the displays of emotions that is counter to what we're experiencing, we're entering into emotional labor. And you know, one of the best examples that exists is when McDonald's expanded their franchise to Russia. And in Russia, I don't know if you've ever been there, Megan. I have not. People don't smile. Everybody looks like they want to put you in timeout and punch you in the face. And this is just their <laughs> default their default response. And basically, when McDonald's appeared in, in Moscow, um, it made very little money. And the reason was, was that locals felt very uncomfortable meeting a cashier who says, hey, how are you doing? Hope things are going great. How can I help you? And just that level of optimism really threw people for a loop and it made them uncomfortable. And the workers themselves, it was so contrary to how they typically behave emotionally that it was laborious and demanding on them and they were quite tired and exhausted. And so it required a lot of cultural training to get the employees to be able to be themselves and for the public to realize that, you know, maybe this is a way that you can actually interact with people at a positive realm. And you and your co-author, Robert Biswas-Diener, write that anger is neither good nor bad. It's what you do with it that matters. Talk about that. I would actually change that a little bit in that anger in general is a very functional emotion. I mean, here are the two reasons we get angry, is that we find that the actions of other people we believe are unjust, unfair, or contrary to acceptable social norms of being nice to each other. Or we feel angry because we feel that some goal that is really important to us has been frustrated or blocked in some way. And when you think about the motivational underpinnings of anger, well, I would not want my kids to have low levels of anger. If, if they feel that people are being inappropriate to them, they're being unfairly treated. And if someone is blocking things that are important to them, I want them to feel a sense of empowerment that, hey, you're not a passive agent walking through the world. You can do stuff. You can respond to people. You can be assertive. You can find ways around obstacles to get towards your goals. And anger is a motivational fuel that propels us to forward. And we wouldn't have civil rights revolutions if it wasn't for anger. We wouldn't have had the Arab Springs where you have people in Tunisia and Egypt and the Middle East that are fighting against totalitarian regimes. And we wouldn't have women that are fighting for equal pay in the workforce if it wasn't for anger and its cousins, righteous indignation, irritation, and frustration. And so as uncomfortable as it is, as physiologically demanding as it feels, let's just give an ode to the awesomeness of anger. <laughs> <laughs> is there ever a danger that such legitimate anger, like the examples you just laid out, gets dismissed because we have these societal prejudices? She's just a bitter woman or he's an angry black man. I mean, you just hit it perfectly. The opportunities to express anger and feel it in the company of others is not distributed equally 
in society. What I love about the example you just gave, I'm talking about women and you know people that are black and brown in particular, is that here is like a an objective fact, scientifically proven, that we know that if you are a woman and express the same intensity of anger as I do, the same frequency, and experiencing the same obnoxious, rude, inappropriate manager, I will get more benefits from my expression of anger than a, a comparable woman would. And that I would get more benefits from it and being treated as like, oh, you stand up for yourself. You know what? You're the kind of person I want to be around. Like, I know where I stand. Whereas someone that was black or brown would be less likely to be treated fairly in response to pointing out that they've been mistreated and pointing out that they should be treated with more dignity and respect. And that's something that first we have to know the problem before we can solve the problem. And there are display rule differences where white people, particularly white men, are given more bandwidth to how they can express anger compared to other people. So Dr. Todd Cashton, how can anger be an effective tool when we're navigating social situations or these other situations? When we experience a lack of justice and a lack of fairness and a lack of dignity, one way is to lash out at people, but that's only one of a number of flexible responses we can engage in. I mean, another one is collecting allies and coalitions to fight against tyranny and to fight against injustice. And one of the strategies in the workplace or even in social groups is checking with other people to see like, hey, let me run this by you. Like, the things that this dude just said to me, am I wrong that this is completely unfair, inappropriate, wrong, insert Mad Lib blank for something that you feel is like is thwarting things you care about? And when you find other people agree with you, bring them in. And because in numbers, the minority can can basically overcharge the power and the status of people who are in the majority. You write about how anger can be effective in negotiations and in some workplace interactions. How so? What we know in negotiations is that a mild dose of anger showcases it signals that you have power. It signals that you're in this game, you understand it's a game, you're ready to play. And when that happens, people are more willing to make concessions and they're less likely to uh, engage in malfeasance when you're negotiating and you're bargaining with people. And this happens also at the business level. You know, when companies are deciding whether or not to engage in trade or whether there is going to whether one company wants to buy out another company, most people start with lowballing each other. And the idea is is when you show that you're assertive and you stand up for things that you care about, it's a short circuiting of the idea that I can run one over you, is that I can treat you unfairly. And so small expressions of anger especially early on in the process for something that's kind of that's that you feel is wrong is a way of you displaying is that um, I'm not a weak character that you can basically mistreat during these negotiations and it tends to work. How do we find a balance here so you engage in this but you aren't just being an alpha bully? Do you know what I mean by knowing like, well, if I just do this and I'm going to get my way? Well, it's a really good question because there's a little bit of nuance in this. We know that displays of anger in negotiations, displays of anger with your friends, displays of anger when your romantic partner or your kids annoy you, they work better if you tend to be a more agreeable person in general. 
And the reason is the contrast effect. So if you tend to be a highly quarrelsome person, just generally experience anger and are generally an irritable curmudgeon, well, your displays of anger are, are inert because it's basically the default. We expect you to be angry. We expect you to be irritable. We expect you to be frustrated. There's nothing interesting there in terms of a signal. If you tend to be kind and agreeable and then you express anger, that works because now you are selective and you're basically telling people this situation is unlike other situations. This behavior that you engage in is unlike other ones and you evoke a response. I'm letting you know emotionally what that is and this is a nice situation for us to actually talk in depth about how this is a behavior or this is a situation we don't want to be repeated. And we know that in athletic coaches, those halftime locker room conversations, when a coach expresses a high deal of anger and they tend not to be an angry coach in general, those teams tend to have a burst of explosive performance enhancements in the second half compared to coaches that don't display levels of anger. Well, that's an interesting point. And you actually write that anger sparks creativity. How? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, it's Robert and I's favorite finding in our book, The Upside of Your Dark Side. Essentially is when you are in a state of anger, this is not like anxiety or guilt or shame or sadness. Those negative emotions make you want to take a step backwards and avoid threats. Anger, weirdly, does not make you vigilant or sensitive to searching for threats. It makes you search for rewards. When you're in a state of anger, you want to take a step forward. You want to approach, you want to attack the problem. You want to remove the barrier that's in front of you. And with this motivational fuel, basically, um, you start to see what are the different ways that I can get around this situation. And your mind basically expands very quickly in terms of, all the different kind of possibilities of how I can deal with something that is obstructing what I care about. And in there, in that, in that like broadened view of ways to solve and a problem that is disturbing me so much that I'm feeling discomfort that I don't want to feel, is that you tend to develop original, functional possibilities of solving that problem. So you have this kind of burst of creativity that happens there. So much so that when people give you an angry message in the workplace, a manager or a leader, and it's not regular, right? It's an uncommon display. Like maybe just the most angry you've ever seen your manager because you had a bad quarter in terms of sales. What that does, it doesn't make you retreat into yourself. What it does is it makes you think like, okay, I need to do something. I need to prove my worth. I need to, I need to showcase that this is a blip and this is an outlier in terms of performance. And you end up seeing a greater flurry of creative ideas and a greater number of ideas in different categories. So it's not just number of ideas, but it's also the number, the different types of ideas that occur. And Dr. Todd Cashdan, um, if we are in a workplace or system or relationship that really pushes for constant positivity, you write that the result is people in that system have no outlets for anger or negative feelings. What are the results of that? When we're pushed to feel positive when we don't feel positive, this is visible to other people. If there's anything that 
is at the top of the family feud list of things I don't want to see in a social interaction. It's disingenuous. It's moral hypocrisy. It's inauthenticity. I mean, I see adults do this all the time with my kids. I regularly go to soccer games and adults will, I don't know if it's well-meaning or just really poor emotional intelligence, will regularly tell my kids, why aren't you smiling? You look so unhappy. Are they girls? They're girls. Yeah, it's, a very, it's, a very, it's definitely a very gendered question, right? That gets, and maybe you've been, based on your, your response, you've probably been asked this question before. Yeah, we've all gotten it at some point. I regularly stop that moment and I ask everyone listening to do this the same thing and ask them, why should they smile? Why should my kids smile? From what you know, what happened right before the social interaction? I have no idea. So could have been something bad, could have been something neutral, could have been something ambivalent, could have been something annoying, they could be tired, they could be hungry, uh, they might not want to be practicing right now. Should they smile? And usually this is like, you know, people are used to me being the psychologist dad on the sideline. Like, I got it, I got it, I get it, I get it. But what I'm really doing is I'm training one by one human beings to not push this toxic positivity message, especially to kids because they're just learning about the scripts of how they're supposed to behave. And if they get asked that enough times, they're going to think, oh, I should be walking around like this really happy, gleeful person all the time. And then what happens is that you lose intimacy. You lose these really great, important social interactions where I'm like, Megan, I'm like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Like, What's happened today? What's good? What's bad? What have I missed? And the idea that I give you the freedom to talk about something Mm. that you're happy that you accomplished the good thing or actually, you know what? Like this has been a pretty crappy week. I'm like, tell me more. Um, I've given you that opening as opposed to like, hey, you look like you're in a good mood. And which could and it and if you're not in a good mood and you look like you're in a good mood, I just basically created a social norm for you to continue with the flow of the conversation I set up. And all of that makes us divorce ourselves from our true thoughts, feelings, memories, and sensations. And I think for us to be authentic, for us to be um, more in touch with how we're feeling, and for us to be assertive. It starts with how we treat other people in terms of allowing people sufficient room to express whatever it is they're feeling. And if they're expressing negative stuff, probe and ask, at least say, or at least ask at the minimum, would you like support or would you like my help in anything? And give people the option. So how do we know when it's okay to be angry? How do we stop this from becoming problematic or toxic, but being a healthy expression? Well, let, let me throw a wrench into everything I just said, um, since you asked. Leslie John, she has this great body of research that is, hasn't even hit the presses yet, where she's basically been studying of um, how useful is anger when you get accused of doing something you didn't do. And, and what they found was, in a course of six different studies, is that people get more angry when they are accused of something they didn't do than, than when someone tells them that they did something wrong that they did do. And this is a really important data point because I think of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, irrespective of of the content, is that the, the amount of judgments that were made on in terms of his display of anger in that setting. And so they had a study where they actually showed them clips from Judge Judy and all those kind of crappy daytime court, you know, fake courtroom reality TV shows. And what they did was they they took out whether they were actually guilty or innocent and people who express more anger during these court cases they were described as being 
less trustworthy, and less likable. And that's an important data point, is that when we are accused of things that's wrong, we have a tendency to want to express our anger vividly because it's, it's, just, it's just such a horrible experience, right? You're being told that you engage in vices mm-hmm. that you didn't do. What we know based on this, this brand new science is that you will persuade more people if you can try to attempt to be more calm and have more equanimity when accused. And later, when you're with your close friends and your loved ones, you can let that anger out and express that and kind of invent in terms of what that experience was like. Are we trying to persuade someone with our emotional expressions? Are we trying to have someone learn something about us or us learn about someone else? Or are we trying just to be as candid and as honest as humanly possible? And I would say that we have to think about what our motivation is in terms of the emotions that we're expressing. And sometimes, while it hurts, like it really hurts as a human being, it's sometimes better to conceal and suppress our emotions in the short term because we have a a goal of trying to influence, persuade, and get some momentum on a goal that we care about that's other than us being exactly who we are and how we feel at the moment. And Dr. Todd Cashdown, going back to your example when it's effective if you're already a calm and reasonable person and you have this flash of anger that's uncharacteristic, if you're lashing out personally at people with ad hominem attacks, perhaps not as effective versus, I don't like this situation, I want change. We want to avoid attacking the person and focusing on the actual behavior and situation. And the way to prepare yourself mentally is when you're not angry, when you're calm. Take stock and do audits of moments when you're angry that you wish that you would handle yourself better and moments that you were angry that you're proud of yourself because you stood up for yourself. If you take stock of this regularly, you'll find patterns in terms of how to behave in an effective and ineffective way. And I think you captured you know, a really important point that's so easy to look over because we kind of tend to think of it, it's something that happens in middle school and high school and not in adult the adult world, which is ad hominems don't work online. Ad hominems don't work in person. Like they're just not an effective strategy to get someone to move to your side, to change their view, or to be nicer to you or wanna be around you. Is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't touch on? I think it's important for me to express that the penultimate psychological tool for humans is being psychologically flexible, is to be able to match your behavior to the demands of situations. And so all of these tools are valuable in some situations and the problems arise when we overly identify and obsess over particular tools. You can find links to Dr. Todd Kashtan's books, including The Art of Insubordination at peacetalksradio.com. You can also hear more of Megan's interview with Dr. Todd Kashtan in the complete interview she had with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. After a break, how anger gets amplified online and in social media and how we can avoid falling down that rabbit hole.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Megan Kamrick, and today Megan is exploring anger. It has become more prevalent in our society and our lives over the last few years, and one way that manifests is certainly on social media. Dr. Aaron Balick is our next guest, a clinical psychotherapist who is the director of Still Point Spaces UK. He's also the author of the book, The Psychodynamics of Social Networking, Connected Up, Instantaneous Culture, and the Self. How do social media and online interactions perhaps feed our tendencies to show anger and outrage? One of the main ways in which most kinds of social media mediate our relationship with the social world is they reduce interpersonal complexity. If I'm addressing an audience, for example, I can see people's faces, I can see their body language. If I say something offensive or not very nice, I'm gonna get some feedback for that, which is gonna moderate my own behavior in what I'm saying. Now, when that complexity is reduced, that means that I'm a little bit freer to do some things that I might not do in that complex interpersonal environment, which means maybe be a little bit more aggressive, maybe be a bit more mean, and not have those interpersonal cues that would generally encourage me to moderate my behavior. Is social media bringing out our darkest impulses or is this just basic human behavior because we're not face to face? So this just it tends to be what happens. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at the different kinds of social media. So lots of social media do reflect our interpersonal lives and not so uh, in a kind of relatively accurate way. So for example, if you're on Facebook and you're really only friends with people who are in your real life social network, so you generally know most of those people in that network, it's gonna broadly reflect the kind of relationships you have there. So if you're lucky enough to be in a social environment that's relatively supportive and nice, that's gonna be reflected in your, in your Facebook. And equally, if you happen to be unlucky and you're in a social environment that's not so nice and maybe a little bit smart, snarky and a little bit brittle, that's gonna show up in your Facebook. And that's because that's kind of what Facebook is about, generally known relationships. When you move on to larger scale social media like Twitter, it activates different parts of the human psyche. So a lot of the people on Twitter, you may or may not know. You're talking to people at scale. You may or may not be under your real name, so that could be traceable back to you or not. So the larger the scale and the more anonymous you are on that social network, the more that could lean into the less beneficial social things like being a bit more nasty, being a bit more aggressive, being offensive without getting that interpersonal feedback that we were talking about before. Have you seen gender differences in some of these things we're talking about? So I think broadly you could say that you do generally see some gender differences and you see gender differences in everyday life as well. So people that score highly for antisocial personality disorder, for example, are more likely to be men than women. And then when you go online, you see that reflected even more. And when I say even more, it's because those parts of you that are a little bit antisocial can be more antisocial for the reasons we were discussing before around the anonymity thing. Antisocial men tend to have a bigger footprint on social networks like Twitter, for example, or particularly anonymized social networks. You also notice that criticism towards women who are vocal voices on these networks tend to have that kind of misogynistic attitude toward it that you don't tend to see the other way around. So you do tend to see these kinds of not very welcome gender differences appearing across social media. 
And how does the performative aspect of social media feed into outrage or anger? So the performative part is kind of like which tribe you're signed up to and what you get outraged about, which kind of creates an in-group around you and an out-group around you. So that's kind of uh, an identity situation. The anger and outrage, I think, is more of a sensation situation, right? Mm -hmm. So what people often don't talk about, which I think is really interesting, is that the expression of anger and rage can actually feel good because it's sensational. So it tends to be a contagious emotional component across social media. So everybody gets outraged at something together and the expression of that outrage feels good, right? To get it out. It's not necessarily socially productive, but it can feel emotionally like a good thing, even when it's a bad thing. So it's kind of like eating chocolates when you're tired of eating chocolates, but you keep eating them anyway. And then when you put both of those things together, you have this sort of Venn diagram sweet spot where you can have your identity uh, sort of solidified in your in position of, of, about being outraged about something while kind of moving this anger contagion around that everybody kind of plugs into and, and I put them in air quotes, enjoys together. What is the impact of that on us and on society? It's really not particularly brilliant because what happens is we get regulated up a good metaphor for that is something like road rage. You know, if you get into your car and you're already stressed out, you're more likely to scream and yell at somebody out the window. The more we're on our social media, particularly in those areas that make us angry and upset all the time, that kind of level of stress and anxiety tends to stay relatively high. And Dr. Aaron Balick, you have written about some of the addictive qualities about interactions on social media. How might that apply to anger? It's the same sort of thing. I mean, people think it's strange that you could be kind of addicted to being angry, right, or addicted to outrage. And I use the word addiction here in quite a, a broad kind of way that you kind of keep going back for more. And the simple explanation is it's just, it's a sensual experience. It's an emotionally sensual experience. And when you start regulating up towards that, that experience, um, you might feel like something is missing. You could feel a little bit bored. You could feel a little bit unmoved when that kind of thing is not happening. So you go and you seek it some more. And again, it's like that thing, you're seeking things that aren't particularly good for you, but sort of scratch an itch in that particular moment. And how is anger an indication of other issues that someone might be grappling with? And how can that play out online? So it could be that you have a legitimate gripe in your life that needs to be resolved and worked through and processed. And while that is not being processed or worked through, we kind of vent that anger online. And the problem with that is, is anger isn't really like a pressure cooker. It's not like you vent it and it takes the pressure off. Anger needs to be processed and worked through. It feels like there is more of this anger online and it also feels like it's sort of an outburst where the underlying cause might be anxiety or loss of control. Uh, you really put your finger on it there, actually. My, my mind was going towards anxiety there. So you could, you could have a part-time job as a psychotherapist, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what is anxiety? You know, anxiety is about um, a lack of certainty, right? Um, not knowing where things are going. And what is certainty? having something certain to be angry about, right? So 
there is an argument that people are searching for a kind of righteous certainty by finding out, you know, what to be outraged about. And, you know, some of these things are very legitimate things to be outraged about, and, and we should be angry about it. But then we always have to come back to the uncertainty and the anxiety. How do I deal with uncertainty? How do I deal with not knowing what's coming next? And Dr. Aaron Balick, I read an interview where you said social media aided and abetted by mobile technologies often bypass our self-critical systems and give us a sense of omnipotence. Yeah, so I, I think the aided and abetted part of this is when our social media became part and parcel of our smartphones. So, you know, for those of us who remember the earlier days when in order to go online, you know, you had to go home to a laptop or have a really cumbersome experience, you know, now it is just there all the time. So what happens is we don't pause again to process and decide what to do with the material that's arising. So rather than sitting with that feeling for a moment and deciding what kind of productive action might be taken from it, we just attach that news story onto a tweet and then we start yelling. And that's where that circumvention of like our other skills would come, come online, right? So in another world, if you felt angry about something and you didn't have a mobile phone and your partner and you're sitting on a bus or you're sitting in your car, you're gonna have to decide what to do with that feeling. And then it might be 25 minutes before you get home or where you're going. You've had to sit with that for a little while and then you choose to do something, right? It's not impulsive. Some people see these platforms as great equalizers, giving those who don't have a voice in mainstream culture or media the power to call out bad behavior. Is that so bad? It's Again, it's another one of these gray areas. No, it's not so bad that we have a leveling and democratization of voice. It is so bad in that we have the reduced complexity, right? So... You can be right in your opinion, but if you're being right in your opinion, calling somebody else out isn't provoking the necessary change for that other person to change their opinion or for society as a whole to kind of shift in a particular direction because it's not being worked through, then it just becomes a tennis match of back and forth and back and forth. Now, fortunately, sometimes these things do trickle into everyday conversations. And I think the Me Too movement is a really good example of that. And I think um, the George Floyd experience and BLM is a really good example of that, where a lot of the stuff that's been given voice on social media is then worked through locally. And I think that's kind of a more ideal outcome. So there is a place for righteous anger to drive change. Well, the thing is, you know, everybody's anger is righteous when, when, they're, <laughs> when they're angry, right? So who gets, to, who gets to decide? So, you know, you're talking to a shrink here. So I always say, you know, it's about the pro- processing of it. So name it, be angry, but there's a step beyond that, right? Just being angry and calling out isn't enough. There has to be a process that can enable that anger to move into working through oftentimes, you know, decades or centuries of inequality. How does our sense of self, of identity, uh, and how we express that online play into how we express anger in these forums or platforms and how we react to others? Right. That that is a really good question. And it's actually a very complex question because 
the, the, the phrase sense of self is mm -hmm. a really complex idea, right? So most people's selves are very contradictory, right? You, you can contradict yourself, not all the time, but you know, sometimes you say one thing and other times you say something else. When you're expressing anger in this form, and again, we've been talking about the words righteous anger quite a lot, you create an identity position for yourself. And you might get a lot of followers or a lot of attention for the strength of that position that you put out there. If your sense of self, as it generally is, is a little more nuanced than that. So yes, I feel righteously angry about this, but you know, I could make a little room for this or I don't feel exactly the same way about that. That's much more difficult to communicate uh, through most forms of social media. So you can find yourself painted into a corner with a very kind of basic righteous point of view that actually in your sense of self is much more nuanced. And that can be a bit trouble because uh, then you start to be perceived as being in the less nuanced position. And if that less nuanced position gets a lot of attention, for example, a lot of followers and a lot of retweets and you know, news stories and that sort of thing, then you end up finding yourself more and more committed to that black and white position rather than allowing yourself to be more nuanced. Dr. Aaron Balick, I have a number of friends who have decided to check out of social media entirely or some channels such as Facebook. But for many of us, that isn't an option. Professionally, we need to be there or we like to be in those spaces to keep in touch with far-flung family and friends. So help us find some best practices to guide us on engaging in healthy ways. Okay. The, the biggest problem that people have in this area is they tend to use their mobile devices um, and their social media in their default positions as given to us by the developers. And that basically means that you're getting the default notifications, your phone is buzzing or dinging, or notifications are rising while you're doing something else, if you're on your laptop, for example. And what you're, what you're doing there is you're having a, a passive relationship to your technology, which means you're allowing your technology to take control of you rather than the other way around. And what I always suggest people do in the most wholesome sense is to have an active relationship with technology. And that means you make decisions about what is a healthy way for you to engage. And that's gonna be different for all sorts of different people. But my main take homes are generally turn off your notifications altogether. I mean, I don't even have email on my phone because I find it really unhelpful to read an email on a phone because I can't respond to it properly. And then when you decide to look at email, if you've got that, or your Twitter or your Facebook or whatever you do professionally or privately, you're choosing to look. Yeah, and you go in there and you, now I'm looking and I'm gonna look for 10 minutes and then I'm gonna put it away again. So limit your use, choose when you're using it, decide when and why you're using it, and pay attention to your feelings. You know, If you're scrolling through something and you're starting to feel worse and worse and worse, listen to that and turn it off. Okay, this is a, building on that, a much bigger question. Is it possible <laughs> to promote more kindness and understanding online? <laughs> I think... <laughs> It's like, I don't know, you know, a chocolate bar tastes better than steamed broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> that hot emotions like anger and outrage and righteousness are just spicier than nice things. It's not very nice, but we are just moved by highly sensational emotional content. But I do think that there are a variety of different cultures that exist 
inside social media ecospheres. And to put that in plain English, it's like you can follow a bunch of people who are pretty ratty and unkind on Twitter, or you can unfollow them and follow people who are kinder. And you create an online kinder landscape that you encounter. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that we should silo ourselves because that is also a problem. You can find people that are outside of your general political spectrum or belief system that you don't disagree with, but are not nasty in their disagreements. And that way you get both sides where there's a level of decency and decorum. Well, it's interesting because anecdotally, I have found sometimes that if I'm posting things that are around solutions or responses to problems or are inspiring, that can also gain a lot of traffic or likes. I think I think that's right. And I see a lot of things that are quite inspirational across um, Instagram and Twitter and lots of different social networks that you can identify with and that you can really get on board with. And I think that oftentimes there is a, a critical mass that just needs to be hit where there's a culture change where those less socially desirable outbursts are just happening less and less. But then we all, you know, we all have to take personal responsibility for that. And I know that I have angrily tweeted news stories myself um, that sometimes I've left or more frequently I now go back and delete because I've just decided that I, I don't want my feed to reflect that and I don't want to contribute to that any longer either. So you don't have to say, I'm leaving entirely, but really just taking a pause before your hands touch the keyboard. Yeah, I mean, self-knowledge is so, so very important. And that's just carrying a fulsome awareness of, of the feelings you have in your body, because sometimes it won't even be a thought. It'll be a, like a tightness in your stomach or a shallowness in your breathing. And if you really pay attention to how you are, you know, take for example, if you're bored and you're waiting for public transit and you open up a feed and you start scrolling through and you start experiencing tension. As soon as you become aware of that, you have just solved yourself a really interesting problem, right? When I take my phone out of my pocket when I'm bored and scroll, it makes me feel anxious. Therefore, you know, I'm gonna learn to not take my phone out of my pocket and scroll and cause anxiety for myself. I might take my phone out and put on some nice music or listen to a cool podcast or just make a decision about what kind of behavior is going to be more helpful for me than another. That was psychotherapist and author Aaron Balick. Find out more information and hear more from him and all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. Peacetalksradio.com is where you go to to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can see photos of our guests, read and share partial transcripts, or make a donation to keep this program going into the future. Again, all at peacetalksradio.com. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.